Hey, good morning, Cryout family. I'm glad you can join us today. Hope you had a wonderful week and that you're all doing well. Listen, last Sunday, we had some technical difficulties with our Zoom fellowship. And so we're going to do it again tonight from 7 to 8 p.m. Tonight from 7 to 8 p.m. Hosted by Frank and Eva Tello. So hopefully you can join us. I'll be a part of that so we can see each other, fellowship, and encourage one another. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Esther chapter 7. We're now in Esther chapter 7. That's our text today, the whole chapter. We're now in part 7 of our series, The Providence and Sovereignty of the Unseen King. Now, before we get into today's text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text. That was chapter 6. Now, remember, the king couldn't sleep, and it wasn't by chance or coincidence He had a divine appointed insomnia, and God wanted the king to stay awake because God had something to tell the king. So the king ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him, and they they probably were really boring, uh, so boring it could put the king right back to sleep. Now, the king uh, could have easily called one of his concubines from his harem or could have Ask the, the court musicians to come in and play for him or ask a poet to come in and read him poetry. He had lots of sources of entertainment, but instead he asked for the historical records to be read to him. Now, was that chance? Was that coincidence or fortune? Nope. That was the providence of God. Say providence of God. So the king's servant is looking at thousands of chronicles, thousands of scrolls, and has to pick just one, just one to read to the king. Well, the servant chose one particular book and opened it to the exact page where it tells the story of Mordecai and how he saved the king from being assassinated. You see, just as God guided the king's hand to stretch out his gold scepter to Esther, he guided the servant's hand to choose that chronicle and to turn to the exact page of the record of how Mordecai saved the king's life. You see, God was guiding every hand and guiding every step along the way. Now look at verse 3a of chapter 6, and it says, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asks. So the king becomes aware of his failure to reward Mordecai. And he's saying to himself pretty much, you know, I, I've got to fix this. I've got to make this right. This guy saved my life. Did we ever do anything for him? Is it recorded there in the Chronicle? Tell me. Well, his attendants answered, nothing has been done for him. And this was an embarrassment to the king and it needed to be rectified immediately. Look at verses four and five of chapter six. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. Verse 5, his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman's like, you know, all right, all right, going to get permission to hang Mordecai. And so he strolls in, uh, very confident that his plan will succeed. Now I want you to follow me here, okay, follow me here. Behind the scenes, God gave the king insomnia, right? Then he led the servant to the record about Mordecai saving the king's life, right? And had Haman, listen now, arrive at just the right time. That's divine providence. Say that, divine providence. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? 
Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Verse 7, So he answered the king. Now remember, Haman gets very detailed here because he's envisioning himself with his, excuse me, with this honor. Let's read on. For the man the king delights to honor, look at verse 8, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Verse 9, then let the robe and horse be entrusted to the one to, to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Well, what comes next is not what Haman expected. And you see, here is what we call and what we see as divine reversal. Let's read on. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For who? For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Talk about a rude awakening. Talk about being humiliated. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So after being honored, Mordecai returns to the king's gate. He's not looking for a promotion. There is no sense of entitlement. He's humble and just goes back to his normal job. On the other hand, Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. He then, what he does, what, what, what Haman then does, tells his wife and all his friends what had happened to him and his advisors and wife said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Translation, Haman, you're going down. You're going down. And you see, friends, God exalts the humble, that's Mordecai, and humbles, humbles the exalted, that's Haman. Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now, this now brings us to today's text. The title of my message is, What You Sow, You Reap. Say that, what you sow, you reap. Two points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Number one is the treachery learned. The treachery learned. Say treachery. That simply means betrayed or betrayal of trust, betrayal of trust, or deceptive action. Two subpoints. The first subpoint is the queen's request. Write that down. The queen's request. And I want us to look at verses one and two. The queen's request. Let's read. So the king, verse one. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Verse 2, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, so they pretty much finished eating dinner, and now they're just kind of sipping on some wine. And then, let's continue to read, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be Granted. So this is the third time, the third time, right? The third time 
The king said to Esther, what is your petition? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now, now remember, this was royal hyperbole. It wasn't supposed to be taken literally. It simply meant that the king would be generous. Now, we know that Esther didn't want up to half the kingdom or any of the kingdom. She just wanted the safety and protection of her people. Now, let's look at verse 3. Well, before we even read verse 3, remember the day before. Remember the day before, the queen didn't make the request, right? She didn't make the request. But here she gets right to the point. And what she does, she pleads her case. And you'll notice that her request is worded Worded in such a way that we see cautiousness and wisdom. Say wisdom. Her wisdom is displayed here in approaching the king. And she showed wisdom in how she framed her request. Listen, she said what she said in the way that she said it because I believe that God had given her the exact words at the exact time to speak them. And what comes to mind, what comes to mind is what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 19. Write that down, Matthew 10, 19. Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. And this, I believe, is exactly what's taking place here with Esther. God has given her the right words at the right time, said in the perfect way in order to get the king, to grant her request. So let's listen to what, excuse me, let's listen to Esther's response. Now let's read verse three. Verse three. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. Now now she, she, she surprises the king with her request. She doesn't ask for wealth. She doesn't ask for honor or even the promotion of any of her friends to high positions. She simply just wanted the preservation of herself and her people from death and destruction. That's all. That's all she wanted. And that was her humble and only request. Now let's look at verse 4. Verse 4. For I and my people, did you get that? I and my people, have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So right at this point, right at this point, what she does is she reveals that she and her people are Jews. Did you get that? That they're Jews. And she simply saying to the king, I would have not bothered you nor complained if we were sold into slavery. That would be no problem. I could live with that. I would have held my tongue. There would be no need for this dinner. But, but, me and my people have been sold for destruction, slaughter, and annihilation. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to notice, it's a threefold plot. A threefold plot. Destruction, slaughter, and annihilation. So, so who's really behind this? Huh? Who's really behind this? Well, it's Satan himself. It's Satan himself. If Satan could have eliminated all the Jews, he would have destroyed the line of the Messiah. Now listen, 
This threefold plot describes the enemy, Satan himself, in John 10, verse 10a. John 10, John 10, verse 10a. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. A threefold plot. If you're saved, say amen. Now I want you to get this. Satan not only wants to destroy the Jews, but if you're a child of God, he wants to destroy you as well. He hates you. He hates me because we're followers of Christ's kingdom. So the queen's request, the second subpoint is the king's rage. Write that down. The king's rage. And let's look at verse 5. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? In Hebrew, it's who has filled his heart to do so. Did you get that? Who has filled his heart to do so? And, and the king wonders that anyone should be so wicked as to conceive such a thing or that anyone should be so bold as to attempt to do such a thing. Now look at the text again. Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Well, King Xerxes, he's a lot closer than you might think. He's right next to you. And you see, it was bad enough that innocent people would be destroyed, but his queen, his queen was also involved in the same destruction. Now the king was amazed at the wickedness of this plan, of this edict, which he himself was guilty of. Now remember, remember, back in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, the king gave Haman permission to do this. And it says, so the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So the king hands his signet ring over to Haman so Haman can stamp that signet ring on documents that will authorize genocide for the Jews. Now I got to say this. I believe the king probably had no idea what he had agreed to. And he probably believed that he merely agreed to the execution of a handful of revolutionaries in his kingdom. And you see, he, he had left the whole matter up to Haman. So the details of the order, the details of the edict would have been unknown to the king. And it could also be assumed that while the king gave Haman permission to do with the Jews what he wished, he didn't think that total genocide was his plan. So in a sense, in a sense, Haman deceived the king. If you're with me, say amen. Now notice, Esther didn't say to the king, you're that man. No, look at verse six. Esther said, the adversary, the enemy, is this vile or wicked Haman. I want to stop there. She exposes the truth about Haman. She tells the king, that's the man. He's the one. That's the man. He's the one behind this plot to destroy me and my people. He's the one who designed our murder. And I charge him, the queen says, I charge him with it. And this is why he was invited to the dinner. And you know, I believe that Haman thought the queen was on his side. Well, he thought wrong. He thought wrong. 
And guess what? His day just got a lot worse. Let's read on. Then Haman was terrified, say terrified, before the king and queen. In other words, busted can't be what? Trusted. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine the look on Haman's face? And not to mention, he finds out that Esther is a Jew. Now, I want you to get this. The queen was his prosecutor, the king his judge, and his own, speaking of Haman, his own conscience, a witness against himself. Let's look at the text again. Then Haman was terrified, say terrified, before the king and queen. The Hebrew word, Hebrew word for terrified is ba'at. Say ba'at. It's B-A-A-T. Ba'at, which is much more than fear. It means to be overtaken by sudden terror to the point of physical reaction and nausea. Did you get that? And nausea. Verse 7, if you're still with me, say amen. Verse 7, the king got up in rage. There it is, rage, say rage. Left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So the king walked out, right, of the banquet chamber into the garden. So, so why did he walk out? Why did the king walk out? Well, he was angry. Obviously, right? He was angry. And we knew he had an anger problem, right? But he was angry. And he probably wanted to kill Haman on the spot. And he now realized that Haman had played him for a fool in getting this decree to kill the Jews, in effect, which included the queen. Now, I want you to think about it. The king went from a banquet to grant, excuse me, to grant, excuse me, to grant his queen, her request up to half his kingdom to realizing that his right-hand man, the man who bore his signet ring, the man that he trusted with his own life, had deceived him and betrayed him and got him, listen now, to issue an irrevocable, unchangeable decree that meant the death of his beloved queen. And so the king needed to calm down to stabilize his thinking. One commentator said this, emotionally, he probably wanted to kill Haman right then and there. So he needed to stabilize his thinking to think of a proper course of action. There's a lesson, and this is the lesson. Here it is. When we get angry, and we do, right? When we get angry, we must take the time to gain control and begin thinking again. I'm going to say it again. We must take the time. When we become angry, we must take the time to gain control and begin thinking again. And you know how we do this? As believers, as followers of God's kingdom, we do this by committing and submitting ourselves, get this now, to the control of the Holy Spirit. That's how. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you guys might know this by heart. Galatians 5, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self 
self-control. Say that, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, no law can, can produce that kind of fruit. But the last manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So we need to commit and submit ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit when we become angry. To calm us down and to cause us to think rightly, to think rightly, to respond rightly. Can I get an amen? So, while the king was in the garden blowing off steam and gaining his senses, Haman is in the banquet room digging himself even deeper. And what he does, what Haman does, flares up the anger of the king all over again. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now, I want to stop there. Haman was pleading for his life, right? That's what he was doing. He was pleading for his life. Now, it's interesting, and I want you to follow me here. You would think that Esther would be the one who would have pleaded with Haman for her life, right? And now, he's falling before Esther pleading for his life. Now, listen, God was orchestrating everything, say that, everything perfectly in his way. Now, listen, to fall on the couch where the queen was reclining was a no-no. You didn't do that. That was improper. So let's read on. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? So what the king does, the king accuses Haman of attempting to rape the queen. Let's read on. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they, speaking of the servants and eunuchs, they covered Haman's face. So follow me here. The covering of the face here looks at condemnation. Say that, con condemnation. The face of the condemned is covered prior to execution. Got it? So number one is a treachery learned. Point number two is the tables turned. Say that. The tables turned. Look at verse 9 with me. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had made it. He had, he had it made, me, he had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. Did you get that? Hang him on it. Now, the servants knew everything. They knew everything, and they knew what was going on. They knew what Haman, uh, they knew that Haman had built the gallows for Mordecai. So, because they knew everything, what they did is they informed the king and the king issued the order, hang him on it. Now, I want you to think about it. Haman thought that he had succeeded in killing all the Jews only to be killed because he came against the Jews. Now, there, there's a lesson here, and I want you to get this. And the lesson is this. Get this now. The lesson is this. Evil will not go unpunished. Okay? Write that down. Evil will not go unpunished. Now, I know it seems, I know, I know, I know that it seems like evil is going 
unpunished. As if they're getting away with it. I know it seems that way. It seems like evil is prospering. It seems like the wicked are getting over. But they're not. And they're not going to get away with it. You see, there's, there's, coming, there's coming that day. There's coming, listen now, there's coming that day when the Hamans of this world, the Hamans of this world will be dealt with. Evil will not go unpunished. And, and I know as we, as we look throughout our world today, we see blatant evil and wickedness around us. It's everywhere. But it will not go unpunished. Prove it. I will. Write these, write these scriptures down. Proverbs 11.21. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished. But those who are righteous will go free. Proverbs 11.21. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11. Write that down. Isaiah 13, verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil. Did you get that? The wicked for their sins. I will put an end to their arrogance, to the arrogance of the haughty, and will humble the pride of the ruthless. The pride of the ruthless. Psalm 34, 21. Write that down. Psalm 34, 21 says, Evil shall slay the wicked. Did you get that? Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Matthew 25, 46. Matthew 25, 46 says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment. Speaking of the evil people, wicked people, but the righteous to eternal life. So they, so then they will go away into eternal punishment. Speaking of evil and wicked people, but the righteous, that you say amen, to eternal life. So evil will not go unpunished. Let's go back to the text. Go back to the text. Verses 10a. Verse, verse 10a. Verse 10a. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. You know, I wonder if Haman on his way to be impaled on the gallows remembered what his wife and Advisors said to him back in chapter 6, verse 13, 6, verse 13, where it said, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. I wonder if he remembered what they said to him. Now, remember God's covenant with Abraham? Genesis 12, 3, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. Now listen, Haman found his end on the same instrument he had intended for the death of Mordecai. And Haman was caught in his own trap against Mordecai. And this reminds me of what Proverbs 11.8 says. Proverbs 11.8 says, The righteous is delivered from trouble. This is what it says. And it comes to the wicked instead. Did you get that? The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. 
Psalm chapter 7, verses 14 through 16. Psalm 7, verses 14 through 16 says, Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. Did you get that? The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence, listen now, their violence comes down on their own heads. You know, this reminds me about Satan and how he thought that he won by getting the crowd to crucify Jesus. But the cross, say the cross, turned out to be the instrument of Satan's defeat. The tables turned. Verse 10b, say amen to that. Verse 10b, the last part of verse 10. Then the king's fury or wrath subsided. Then the king's fury or wrath subsided. David Guzik said this, and I love it. The death of a substitute satisfied the wrath of the king. In the case of Mordecai and Haman, it was the guilty dying in place of the innocent. This is what he says. In the case of us and Jesus, it is a matter of the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Isn't that awesome? That is so awesome. Now, I want you to get this. It was the king who gave the order but it was the judgment of God, say that, judgment of God that controlled the circumstances to bring about Haman's death. Now listen, Haman had three, three problems. He had three problems, three problems. The first problem was ambition. Write that down, ambition. That was his first problem was ambition. I want you to follow me here. Haman wanted to be led by the king's men around the city. Well, he was, in the end, led right to his gallows. The second problem was pride. Say pride. Write that down, pride. Haman wanted to rise to the top. Well, he did. 75 feet high, higher than anyone in the city. And his third problem was cruelty. Say that, cruelty. Haman desired to see Mordecai and all the Jews destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Well, he himself would be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. You know, this is a textbook case of God taking that which was meant for evil and working it for good for the deliverance of his People. Say amen. I'm reminded in Genesis 50, 20, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, as he's speaking to his brothers, said this to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, say amen. No plot and no plan from the enemy, will ever succeed against God's people. I'm going to say it again. No plot and no plan 
from the enemy will ever succeed against God's people. Isaiah 54, 17, write that down. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Amen. Amen to that. Now, as, as we kind of wrap this up, I, I want to give you one more lesson. And it's obviously the underlying theme of this passage, of this chapter. And the lesson is this. What you sow, you reap. Write it down. It's a great lesson, right? What you sow, you reap. The principle still stands, friends, today. What you sow, you reap. Now, I want you to write this down. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps, a woman reaps what he or she sows. Now, I want you to follow me here, okay? Just stay with me here. Follow me here. Haman sowed anger against Mordecai, and he reaped anger from the king. He wanted to kill Mordecai. The king killed him. Pharaoh gave orders to drown the Jewish baby boys, and one day his army was drowned in the Red Sea. Jacob killed an animal to deceive his father, pretending to be Esau. Years later, his sons killed an animal and lied to him about the death of Joseph. Are you guys with me? David secretly took another man's wife. His son Absalom took his father's David, David David's concubines, and openly committed adultery with them. David, this is now, killed Bathsheba's Husband and three of David's own sons were slain. Absalom, Amnon, and Adonijah. What you sow, you reap. I'm going to share a story with you real quick here. John Smith was a loyal carpenter working for a very successful building contractor who called him into his office one day and said, John, I'm putting you in charge of the next house we build. I want you to order all of the materials and oversee the whole job from the ground up. John accepted the assignment with great enthusiasm and excitement. Ten days before ground was broken at the building site, John studied the blueprints. He checked every measurement, every specification. Suddenly he had a thought. If I'm really in charge, he said to himself, why couldn't I cut a few corners, use less expensive materials, and put the extra money in my pocket? Who would know the difference? Once the house is painted, it will look just great. So John said about his scheme, he ordered second-grade lumber, but his reports indicated that it was top-grade. He ordered inexpensive concrete for the foundation, put in cheap wiring, and cut every corner he could, yet he reported the purchase 
of much better materials. When the home was completed and fully painted, he asked the contractor to come and see it. John, said the contractor, what a magnificent job you have done. You have been such a good and faithful carpenter all these years that I have decided to show my gratitude by giving you this house you have built as a gift. What you sow, you reap. What you sow, you reap. But I also, listen now, want us to keep in mind that the law of sowing and reaping goes positive as well. It also applies to doing what is good and what is right. Galatians 6, 8. Galatians 6, 8 says this. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Listen. No good deed, no loving word spoken, not even a cold cup of water given in the name of Jesus will go unrewarded. So let me ask you this, friends. Let me ask you this. What did you sow this week? And I want you to kind of ponder on that. What did you sow this week? Listen, every thought and every action we had or did this week planted seed. It planted seed. And it will grow and burst forth a beautiful flower or an ugly weed. It all depends on the seed. You see, Haman learned... He learned this. Sow a thought and you reap an act. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Now listen. Haman, the adversary, is out of the picture, right? He's gone now. He's he's out of the picture. But still... One problem remains. What will happen to the irrevocable, the unchangeable edict of the king? How will Esther and how will Mordecai solve this problem? Well, we'll find out in the next chapter. So don't miss next week. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the amazing, awesome blessing, the honor and the privilege to study your word. And Lord, I pray that we would go about our daily lives and might we be mindful that as we go about our daily lives, mindful of the kind of seed that we're sowing. Lord, your word is clear. What we sow, we reap. And so might we sow seeds of goodness and and righteousness, seeds that will grow and burst forth a beautiful flower and bring glory and honor to your name. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time that we've had to spend in your word. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen, if, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart, into your life, to be your Lord and Savior, we want to give you that opportunity to do so right now. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 10.9 says that if we confess, if you confess, if we confess, if you confess, listen now, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if that's you, if you want to give your life, surrender your life to Jesus today and follow him, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer after me, okay? Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day, Lord. Cleanse me from my sins. Change my life. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. And from this day forth, I will serve you and love you until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you. And if you made that decision to follow Jesus, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. So, Love you all. God bless you. A reminder to connect with us today on Zoom for our Zoom fellowship. I hope you enjoyed the message. Have a wonderful week. Love you all. Miss you all. God bless you. Take care.